0: Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 241. Today is Sunday, the 9th of July, 2017, and this interview is with Andy Abramson, who's CEO and founder of Communicano, a strategic communications agency. He's also co-founder of Velocity Growth, a strategic development and social market services company. And he's a contributing writer to Money Inc., and an acknowledged influencer in all things VOIP. Beyond that, Andy is long in the tooth in the Philadelphia Flyers ice hockey team lore, my favorite team, as well as an aficionado, an award-winning wine producer. In this podcast, we talk about growth, communication strategies, new tech, and what it takes to be a leader. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to The Minter Dialogue. Today, um, I met uh, my guest at a wonderful event called Fine Minds for Fine Wines, and uh, Andy is someone who, who tells lots of wonderful stories, and remarkably... We have three very common passions, really, I mean, top of mind passions. So uh, speaking for myself, for those of you who know me, I am a died in the die-hard Philadelphia fan. Um, I'm also in loving tech, and, um, and I enjoy my wine. So Andy Abramson, you are at the pinnacle, I would say, of all three of these. Tell us how you like to describe who you are, and what's your mindset?
1: I like to tell everybody that I've never worked a day in my life because I've had fun doing everything I've ever done since I was 14 years old, starting with the Philadelphia Wings Pro lacrosse team and then two years later being hired by the Philadelphia Flyers to develop a very arcane concept in 1976. Yes, that far back. I'm ancient. I'm old. I have gray hair. Um, But you don't see it much. But the, the Philadelphia Flyers hired me to build a program called Hockey Central I worked with a great PR person named Cy Roseman who passed away way too early in his life. Um, but Ed Snyder, uh, who I admired from the day I started working for the Wings till the day he passed away a little over a year ago, um, had this vision of getting the kids to play hockey. And the idea was if you got kids playing hockey, they became fans, their family became fans, and that would ensure the fact that they were always as we say, butts in seats at the the old spectrum and now the whatever they're calling it, the Wells Fargo Center, I think, in Philadelphia. And that vision, uh, I made reality for 13 years and created a program that, you know, I left almost 20 years ago, believe it or not. 25 of those programs we started from 76 to 88 still exist, like the Flyers Cup High School Hockey Championship, which, if anyone realized how hard it was to convince people to do something back then, to understand where we were going to where it is today with a 50 million dollar endowment with way more kids playing hockey than there were in 1976 it would be it would be mind-boggling but that was a vision he had and I then took that vision along with a core group of, of of other flyers and spectrum executives to make it reality and we did and I feel proud about that so and then I moved on and uh, did other things. But hockey is still in my blood. I just watched the, the draft and followed right. it very closely and saw my old my old friend Ron Hextall. I remember when Hextall used to do hockey clinics for me um, to teach kids how to play golf. One of the friendliest guys around. And he did really well in the draft, it looks he like. Did. So we, he, could talk, he, we could talk puck.
0: Wheeling and dealing, wasn't he? So how would you describe your mindset, Andy?
1: Always asymmetrical, thinking outside the box. You know, when, when you when you start working at age 14, no one ever really gives you the time of day. So you have to prove that you're not only good, but great. And that all, and then we are given opportunities like I was given with the flyers for 13 years to break new ground every single, every single week we were doing something new and different. You have to look at things differently. And I, I talk about asymmetrical marketing as, as defined in asymmetrical warfare. You use the, Opposition strengths against them. Hannibal used the mountains to come down with the elephants. George Washington took the weapons away from the British and used them, their own munitions against them. And of course, one of the worst examples of asymmetrical warfare was 9 11, where uh, Osama bin Laden and, uh, used our own planes and buildings to bring down our economy. In the U.S. And, and to harm life as it never had been harmed before on our homeland. So those are examples of asymmetrical warfare. When you look at asymmetrical marketing, you have to look at what the other side's doing and how you can be different. See, too many companies, too many marketers are all about me too and me also. Oh, yes, we have that. Oh, yes, we can do that too. And oh, we can do it better. But that doesn't mean they're doing it differently. We look at clients and companies that we work with and the products and services they make, the very first question we ask is, What makes you different? And the second question we ask is, What problem are you solving? Because there's nothing worse than having a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> right. So I was reading in your LinkedIn
0: profile a very, a really wonderful recommendation from the professor emeritus at Temple, where you attended and you also teach. And he says, uh, well, you, you are you know just full of talent and, and, and the, the students always leave agog. So I can just imagine because at the end of the day, you, you're not academically you – know, let's say you're a classic academic and, and you come at it like your life without the training that is brought in these typical business schools. And kind of what happens in business schools is they tell you what others have done as opposed to what you need to do to be different. Does that, does that rhyme with you?
1: That's, that's pretty true. And, and Dr. Marrow was one of my first when I came back to college at 29 years of age after uh, running a lot of accounts for the Denver Nuggets in the NBA. I left the Flyers and went out to Denver with a good friend, John Gardner, who unfortunately passed away, again, too young at 56. Uh, but it was a former pro quarterback. And as, as one of his sales guys once told me at Channel 57, work for John for six months. You'll learn more about sales than you could ever learn in your life. And he was right. Um, but the team got sold and I decided to finish my degree and Dr. Marrow was my advisor and, um, he and another professor, Jim Shea who was a former VP of marketing at, uh, Temple university. Um, we very, very good at being mentors to an adult student, which is never easy because, you know, we're kind of different. Plus I was already working for footcomb building their impact division, which is the seventh largest ad agency in the world. I was in their integrated marketing team. And, um, Dr. Marrow was great because he'd been on the agency side of the world. He actually still runs an agency with his wife while he's in his 70s on the creative side and the writing. And he was very helpful to me at helping me get through those last, you know, two years, junior and senior year, which I ended up doing in less than, I think, 18 months. We ended 16 months total. Um, He was extremely um, open to... Having a student in his class who would push him and not just do the assignments the usual way, uh, I was constantly. I used to tell everybody I had uh, these steno pads as notebooks. This is before we had laptops and iPads. Sure, I had a sten- I used a steno pad. I also used a reporter's notebook. Those mm-hmm. were most students use those big spiral bound loose leaf notebooks, and they're writing right like, And I had this the secretary steno pad because they were smaller lighter could carry them around and I had reporters notebooks and between the two of them was how I took my notes but the thing that most teachers never realized in college was that it was the front of the notes was my classwork but the back of my notes was my work work I even did this even earlier and I would be doing my work work and not really like watching everything I would just like take notes every once in a while and I still got A's and B's hmm. and the, the key was The professors were able to educate. Our textbooks were so clear. But the the biggest thing with Dr. Maris, I used to always have to cut his class to go to New York to see a client or go on a celebrity hockey trip. And um, I made a deal with him that I would make up all my cuts after I graduated. And um, for the next 13 or more than that, next uh, 20 years, 23 years, I think I made up all my cuts on the final night when the university asked me to come in to represent 30 years of his students to speak about him, hmm. and that was my closing line, I said, Dr. O'Mara, I think I've now made my up my final cut tonight as we honor you for your greatness and leadership and advice to so many students, and he said, not according to my great book, Shut so up. we have a good friendship, and um, it's great to have, have your mentors still be active in your life.
0: Superlative. So, um, Andy, you are were also for uh, over 10 years the GM of the Celebrity All-Star Hockey Team. Tell us how that came about.
1: Well, it, it's what my good friend Tony Leacono was like a brother. He um, made a pitch to the National Hockey League in 1986. And the Flyers director of sales, Jack Betson, who's a good friend, comes back from his NHL marketing meeting because he hands me this binder and he says, here's a way to raise money for Hockey Central which was the Flyers Hockey Division. I said, okay. And I looked at it. I went in to see Jay Snyder. Edson, who was then president. Jay said, you know, if you think you can make it work, make it work. I said, well, I think I need to go watch a game and see what it's all about. So I flew to Minnesota. Uh, They were playing, this was their first big game. Um, Tony was there with the team. We hit it off immediately, and, and as part of the deal of having to freeze my you-know-what off in Minnesota in the middle of January, Jay said, well, after that, go to California, because you need a vacation. So I went to California, and Tony says, "Use my house, and we became best friends. He goes, I'm going to be away. I'm taking my wife and then two kids. Now he has four, and I'm friends with his sons, who are then two and four, and they're now all grown up. Um, and uh, we... They were at the pool at the Holiday Inn or something. Marriott, I was using their house, and then I went up to wine country, which is why you talk about our, it's a nice bridge in the wine. I actually went up to Santa Barbara for the first time and fell in love with the region. We'll talk more about my love for that region and the wine I make there soon. But the team was Richard Dean Anderson MacGyver, who many women will remember as Dr. Jeff Weber from General Hospital. It was Michael J. Fox, you know, back then his big claim to fame was Back to the Future and the TV show sure. he was doing. It was Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom, and Night Shift who had yet to really break out, but everyone knew Keaton was going to be a be a star. It was Alan Thicke who unfortunately passed away this December um, playing hockey. So he passed away on the ice doing something he loved. Yeah. Alan was part of the team. Uh, Jerry Hauser, Summer of 42, Oski. Killer Carlson and Slapshot, John Bennett Perry, who along with Jerry and Jamie Widow and Alan had helped form this team as a ragtag group of guys who were just playing hockey in rinks because they grew up playing it. And then over time, we added people like David Kelly, um, producer, writer, uh, director, extraordinaire, producer, L.A. Law, Picket Fences, Allie McBeal, the list goes on and on. David was a lawyer who became a writer and he was also a darn good hockey player at Princeton. Um, His father, Jack Kelly, was a legend in hockey circles as a coach and general manager. And um, David became a good friend and played with us. And David added the, David, I think, became the first really talented hockey player to step on the ice. When I said that most of these guys just played it because they liked it, they were shot in the Beer League guys. I mean, they could hardly, some of these guys could could skate, but not well. But David was strong enough. And we added, then we added John Saunders, who unfortunately passed away a year ago. Um, John Saunders grew up playing hockey. His brother Bernie played with the Quebec Nordiques. John was with the SPN. We added Jason Priestley, and then John Better Perry's son Matthew, who, from friends, and this Matt was like 16 coming on trips, and I'll never forget it. he did an interview, and he goes, "Yeah, we're going to go to Philadelphia. We're going to play a bunch of these old guys." I said, "Oh God, don't call them old. you to have yeah, Bobby Clark's going to come out of retirement. He'll, you know, he'll do what he did to Val- Valerie Karlamov in the Canada Cup and break your ankle. You call him old, but." Um, Dave Schultz might go at it with you, I mean, those were so we we had this great team. Kelsey Grammer from Shears would come on trips as our coach. Clarence Clemens would come as a coach. We had wrestlers and so, Terry Funk so, and other guys. So the idea of this
0: of this was to raise money, as I understand it correctly.
1: We raised about in, in the ten years that we, we I mean, I was involved, we raised um, somewhere over six million dollars for charity. Real money again, real money, not. Not this, like, phony money that, you know, people talk about. Real money into real charities. Not only Hockey Central, Philadelphia Flyers Organization, in Iraq. They completely sold out the spectrum. We had 17,000 people in the building watching the Flyers alumni play against the celebrities. And we probably could have sold the tickets for twice the price had we been smarter. But, um, you know, you live and learn. Right.
0: So, um, Annie, I want to get on to uh, your communicando business because that's uh, you've been doing that, for a long time. Tell us a little bit about Communicano, the types of clients you're working with, and, and what is this working with asymmetrical marketing efforts that you, you uh,
1: talk about? Well, clients come to us because they want to they want help in three areas. One is their business strategy. Second is their marketing strategy. Third is their communication strategy. Um, we, we work with two types of companies. Startups, or we like to say early stage, which could be anywhere from two guys in a garage with an idea to a venture back company that has a great idea but doesn't know how to tell their story. Or companies in transition. So we worked with the likes of Nokia and AT&T and AOL and BlackBerry, who know they have to make these seismic shifts. They they're, distro- they're destroyers in the ocean, and they need to turn around, but at the same time, they need a little PT boat to get to do some really things early.
0: The, the list you just said uh, seems like a list of companies in deep doo-doo,
1: or at least we'll Nokia,
0: Nokia and Blackware anyway.
1: Well, Nokia, we did in 2005, we accelerated the sale of their smartphones um, by doing communications around the blogger program that we founded for them. Um, if you think about it, Nokia ended up being sold to Microsoft and made a lot of money these days. You know, Microsoft then sold it, you know, shut it down, to their own thing. Um, AT&T, we were doing their VoIP product called Call Vantage, which was by far the best voiceover IP product ever made. Unfortunately, they got bought by the guys from Texas who didn't have a clue. Um, um, AOL, we worked on a developer relations program. Again, corporate politics is never fun, but we did a lot of great stuff for them around their AIM phone line and um, getting developers involved. Uh RIM, oh, well, you know, you really can't – nobody could have saved RIM. They
0: might, they might have had a good hockey team, though, RIM. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they might have had a great team. But we had some fun doing what we did with um, Alex Saunders and his team. But we focused on developer relations, which was the largest program of its type. So we, we were very happy to be able to support companies like that. But the more fun is the startups. That's – that's you know, I've been in the startup business since I'm 14. Everything I've ever done was a startup.
0: And so at Communicona, you were telling me before that you – you don't have. It's not exactly an accelerator, but you really help them get out and exit. That's sort of what I understand.
1: I think we're the accelerant, not the accelerator. <laughs> you know, you got to put some fuel in the tank. You got to have a little additive. You got to have a little boost. You got to have a little jump. We we look at things differently. We we really look at you know what's your story. Um, how are you going to find that that real core nugget that's going to cause somebody to say we want to work with you. You know, are you the company that somebody wants to do a deal with? That's uh, one of my colleagues, Bill Ryan, likes to say. When you talk about ecosystem competency, are you the company somebody wants to do a deal with? Meaning, they want to partner. I hate to use the word partner because there's legal implications. Can they work with you? Will the combination of one plus one give you five? You know, do you have? That, will it be that that light year type of jump where you just you know hit that? hit a spot and all of a sudden it's not the hockey stick it's the whole dozen hockey sticks
0: so when you're looking at them uh, Andy you've got the three things that I'm thinking of one is the product the second is the brand and the third is the personality of the individual or the individuals who are running the startup how would you how would you gauge these three in terms of importance
1: well I don't really worry about what the product is because it always will be made better um I look at the team. Again, we get my background with the Flyers, the Philadelphia Wings, the Nuggets, even an upper deck. It's a team. And I had this long conversation with the former uh, head of Microsoft's uh, acceleration program that they were doing spark John DeGrady, once. And he says, How do you pick the companies you work with? And what do you look for? And I said, It's the team. And, and we had this whole discussion around what makes a winning team. And the winning team is not about having the high score at the front of the line. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, it's about winning being a habit. You you look for players who are on championship teams, who understand what it is to win as a team, not to be a superstar who stands out in the crowd. So no individualists. People say, oh, I was a great golfer. I was a great tennis player. I go, yeah, but that's an individual sport. I was a great gymnast. Yeah. I want to know somebody who, who was on a winning baseball team or a winning basketball team, winning hockey, soccer, football, picket, but on a team that played as a team, not a unit of people who played individually. So if you're in track and field, if you're not on the relay relay team winning, you're an individual because you win and you win or you lose based on your own performance. But that relay racer wins because the team does everything right. From coming out of the starting blocks to handing over the baton, that in track and field would be a team effort, as opposed to the track and field team, which has the pole vaulter, the shot putter, or the hundred yard dash winner.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when you when you were working with these uh, startups, you're working with, and you've got so many, you've got a really strong uh, success record. So you've got, you said, you had like a hundred uh, that come through, forty two have gone out and exited, which is an enormous. Uh,
1: hit rate. A few hundred. I wouldn't say one hundred, I'd say a couple hundred. All right. But, but still, anyway, it's still a great value. It certainly
0: average. is. What is it that uh, you attribute that success to? What is, what's the key point for any of these startups uh, that you're looking at and working
1: with to be successful? Timing. Is the product right at the right time? Is there someone who's going to buy it when you know, when you start it? Uh, when we worked with StubHub, the first question I asked Colin and Jeff was, who's going to buy you? And they said, eBay or Ticketmaster they had a clear vision of who they would ultimately be annoying so much or so valuable they were annoying Ticketmaster they were valuable to eBay when it came down to the final acquisition it was eBay it was the better fit you plug their ticket resale platform right into the eBay platform Ticketmaster they were a big annoyance to um Sometimes you, when you promote a company, you you pick on the the biggest guy in the in, in the market. You you annoy them. It's a David and Goliath approach. We've got a bunch of Davids. It's a matter of companies get bought because you either fill a niche that somebody doesn't have, you're taking business away from somebody bigger, or you have a team that will be better at running the business than you currently have inside or there's technology that the company has that you need. Those are the four main reasons that companies get bought. Everything else is just window dressing. You can talk about the strategic alignment and all the fits, but you know ultimately if the product doesn't exist five years later, it was because it was some IP that they had or some people. You know, Look at Skype. Skype's been folded in to Microsoft to the point of where it's an entirely different product than it was. It's just a brand name now. It's no longer the peer-to-peer thing it was. But Skype provided Steve Ballmer a reason to talk to every telecommunications company in the world, and brought them all to Seattle right after the acquisition to say, "Okay, guys, here's how we're going to make money together." It was a strategic acquisition because it gave him a sales opportunity he would not have had. So, and we worked with five or six companies in the Skype ecosystem, so we understood that fit. Um, you know, Boingo was one of them, which was the Wi-Fi company. Mm-hmm. Uh, When all we worked with up until the time they exited, the the fit is, they went public, the fit there was Wi-Fi. Uh, But when you look look at companies, you have to figure out, and we figured out, what makes them so unique? And it's getting harder and harder these days, I'll be honest with you.
0: I, I can imagine, because um, it's such a changing landscape. When um, you talk about these team, you mentioned team as one of the four areas. How how do you assess whether they're going to be a Travis Kalanick or a real team
1: player? You look in their eyes. It's in their eyes. There's a fire that they have. Um, I remember when um, I wrote an article uh, about a bunch of winemakers. I was doing some freelance writing. I was not writing as a wine critic, actually, for a local paper in San Diego, and I went up to Hospice Terone, and I wrote about three winemakers. Uh, David Corey from Core, um, Chris Cherry was a longtime friend in, uh, in Elisville Creek, and Ethan Lindquist. And what I remember seeing about David and Chris was, and Chris was a restaurant turned winemaker was the fire that they had in their eyes and how how, how they the wonderment it reminded me of the first time I met Tom Petty in the music world or met the, 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 uh, Stuart Copeland and um, Andy Summer from the police you just knew there was something different about them um, you know, so I met Bobby Clark for the first time when I was 14 um, you know, as we call him, Whitey um, you know, there was a certain there's was just something in the way they carry themselves the way they they look, and it, it's not something which you can fake. It's not, you know, it's an emotional touch. So I, I, look at, I look in their eyes, and I look to see, are they really passionate about what they're doing? Are they looking to change the world, or are they just looking to make a buck? And I'm more interested in those who want to change the world than those who make a buck. I
0: hear you, and I would say that Travis Kalanick has presumably a lot of that fire in his eyes. Travis is
1: great. Tra- <laughs> I, you know, I'm a Travis fan in a lot of ways you know but he doesn't I, sound like a real team player um he actually he actually is he's, he, he's got his group of people around him the the problem that you have going on in silicon valley and, and again i i tend to be a little more resistant of of it and i grew up in sports i grew up in the locker room i'm, I'm very used to bro behavior there's no bigger place in, in, in the world other than a sports team where bromance has You know, it's built into the system. Why do you think, when when you become a rookie on a pro team, smart general managers pair you with a veteran? Keith Allen of the Flyers, I was I was Keith's roommate, I like to say, for the last, for a few years when, after Clark took over, my office was right outside of Keith, so we would talk a lot. So I like to say Keith was my roomie for a couple of years, and, and I asked him once, he said, when you, when you drafted somebody and you paired Tommy Bladen with, a, I think it was Ed Van Ebb, what was the goal, there? he goes, to make Tommy grow up faster and let him learn more? Because when you're rooming together on the road, you're paired, you're, you're talking, and they're talking about the opposition, they're talking about their teammates. You, you, you look at, at that type of thing, but also, so your bro culture from the day you step into the pros. Silicon Valley with the, the male chauvinism, the... Uh, the very, you know, very egotistical thing. That's sports and music and entertainment. And it's people trying to be a rock star. Well, Travis, in a lot of ways, has that same Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger, swagger. But yet, you know, when it comes time to get up on stage and play, Jagger still at, what's he, almost 80? Still pulls the band together and they go out and put out a kick-ass show. Rod Stewart, Bruce Springsteen, they have... There's one leader. You know that Jagger's the leader of the Stones, and you know Springsteen's the leader of the E Street Band, but they pull the team together and play. So Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Travis, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. If you look at rock bands, Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, E Street Band, Roger Daltrey in the Days of the Who, there was always one front man. But they knew how to pull the band together and play. And Yes, you have you can. Yes, you have Stevie. Uh, you have the big man Clarence. You've got a bunch of musicians in there, who like Peter Townsend and Roger Entwistle. Keith Moon. But Roger Daltrey was the leader there. You, you always have a front man, and somebody's got to have that personality to do it. Also, not everybody's cut out to be in front of the in front of the public. I've worked with a lot of CEOs who are shy and retiring. Even when you look at Jeff Bezos, he's very much in the background. He's more of a of an egghead and a nerd, and that's why what Amazon does is Amazon talks as a company, not him as an individual. It's all personality driven. But bro culture in the Valley, it's almost like a bunch of kids who never had, who never grew up with the kinds of things I grew up with, which was athletes, and we chased women, and we went out drinking, and we party, but we knew how to be discreet about it. Um, my, my my favorite line was from our boss coach with the Philadelphia Wings. He goes, most of these guys would have more fun if they were just learning to keep their mouth shut. And Bobby Allen was um, referring to one player I was so well, famous. But...
0: I would say, Andy, though, keeping your mouth shut is sort of one part of it. But the reality is social media has made other people's mouths more I mean communicative. So it might have been easier when, you know, you just did, newspaper reporters... We're coming out with their steno pads, but now the sort of broadcast ability has made life a little bit harder to keep your mouth shut.
1: Well, the, the key is, first, even though you have a lot more social mediologists, meaning people are like the weatherman, for one day you say it's going to rain, the next day you say it's sunny, and a day later nobody remembers what you said, but they were mad at you anyway. It, it, social media has has allowed more people to have a voice. But... Back in the day, we had a lot more reporters prying into things than you do today. Right. You have less reporters, less media. And a story, I like to say reporters don't find stories, stories find reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to really do something. There's also a lot of um, over-sensationalism by celebrity them When you look at Tiger Woods, um, when you look at now Bill Cosby, um if that's the best thing people can be writing about, in when we've got a lack of world peace, when we've got economies in different parts of the world heading heading to hell in a handbasket, if we've got environmental issues that need to be tackled, that are far more newsworthy. Well, than,
0: you know, and I, I, I was just said at the Global Editors Network with eight hundred and fifty of the world's premier. Uh, news editors, and uh, we're talking about obviously these are people who come from the background of investigation and, and want to join journalism because of that. But the challenge, of course, for them is is finding the business model where people are prepared to pay some kind of dollars for a Washington Post subscription or you know some investigative journalism.
1: So I had I had Rod Nordland, as a, my journalism professor, who went to cover two coronations of the popes, um, and then. Also, was for you went in and investigated the Warlocks motorcycle gang. was dragged by the back, dragged on a chain from the back of a motorcycle when they found out he was a reporter and lived, about, lived there. They didn't kill him, they just wanted to teach him a lesson. Mm. Um, he's now he's now been embedded in Iraq and Afghanistan. Pulitzer Prize winner and um, investigative reporters like him are born, not bred. Uh, the, the number of investigative reporters in the United States today is probably you know one-tenth of where they were when I had 30 to 50 reporters I could talk to on a daily basis across three types of media, print, radio, television. Um, you have, you're lucky if you have a beat reporter covering a company today. Yeah. Uh, Mike Isaac's doing a real good job with um, covering Uber and he'll go on to the next thing once it all dies down, but you don't have beat reporters like I grew up with in sports where I had five reporters from four newspapers that I could talk to on any any given day who would take a phone call, no email, who you would call up and they would shoot the breeze with you for 15, 20 minutes and I would talk to them about things that had nothing to do with what I was doing. You would feed them information. I'll never forget Robbie Tannenbaum turned to me when I was 14 and said, because he realized I was a source because I was close to the players, he said, tell me what happened in the night's game. I said, oh, the ice cream cone play. And he goes, what? I go, the ice cream cone play. I said, it works this way, but why don't we go downstairs and talk with John Grant and Jimmy Watson, who executed the ice cream cone play tonight. And he t- I took him down at age 14, and he would come back to me every game and say, you got anything like that ice cream cone play angle mm-hmm. for me? And I was 14, and uh, my boss side goes, Robbie loves you. Of course, we also had the Jewish thing going, and mm-hmm. you know. And again, I was like the little kid brother to all these people. Mm-hmm. But reporters... Back then, had time. There was many of them. The newsroom was full. I used to yep. deliver press releases at fourteen, fifteen, and I would see all these guys out. I knew who they were by name, and they knew me. You don't have that today,
0: no. So, hey, listen, you. So, you on top of everything else, you've also been a journalist, um, being a tech reporter. You've been a podcaster, a radio show host. What What is the one technology that turns you on these days,
1: Andy? It's a really hard question because i use so much of it every day and i've been i'm one of these people who buys things early on um, i'm impressed with a new product we're actually representing called the zas which is a wine preserver system um that's because the imagination behind it is great and it really lets you protect your wine you open a bottle it saves it uh i've been playing around with a thing called a smart unit which lets me track my suitcase when i travel i know exactly where it is um I think that I'm still enamored mostly with my iPad. If I could, if I had, if I was told you could only take one piece of your tech gear with you, you couldn't take your laptop, you couldn't take your smartphone. What would it be? It would be my iPad with my keyboard because I can do everything on it now. I run, on Google, we run the company on Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Um, apps are great because they use less bandwidth in the browser. I can make phone calls over Dialpad or telzio or Skype. A lot of other services and most importantly I could see people with it. So it's kinda like I would love I wish the smaller iPad had the power of the larger iPad. So I use an iPad Pro, but that's kind of like my favorite Gizmo.
0: Well, it sounds like you need it at least with a four G or you know a connection to the internet. I have right? that. Well, so I want to finish Annie talking about wine because, as you say in uh, some article I read about you, you kind of are an accidental wine expert or an accidental winemaker. So we met at Day and we were talking about uh, the future of fine wines. So. Um, you are a uh, you have an enormous collection of beautiful wines, and you make your own wine. So tell us exactly how you fell into that uh, juice.
1: So everything happens because of you know circumstance, just like how I ended up uh, in sports at age fourteen. Uh, a good friend of mine, Doug Kaplan, met Bob Lindquist of Coupé and Jim Clendenen of All Bone Cramot in at Aspen Food and Wine in like nineteen eighty nine. And they came to his house when they were in Philadelphia on a tour. And Doug's and we we're Doug was part of my drinking group. that We had a Friday lunch crowd. He goes, hey, Bob and Jim are coming in. I go, Bob and Jim, who? And he tells me, okay. And so I come out to his parents' house and meet them. And a few months later, I'm living in California, and I go to a wine dinner featuring old Uncle Clermont. And I get to see Jim. And he goes, hey, now that you're living out here, you can come to the wiring more often. And I go, sure. He goes, well, call it Santa Barbara. Okay. So I came to Santa Barbara and he goes, you're going to meet a friend of ours named Doug Marjoram. You guys are about the same age because Jim and Bob are a few years older than me. And he goes, you and Doug are going to get along great. And he was right. And Doug Marjoram became a really good friend. He, he was a young restaurateur making some wine, selling wine, putting on the Santa Barbara Futures tasting. His wine cask restaurant was great. And one day Doug's really got his own winery. And um, I was I organized a trip with a bunch of friends from work and from Skype and a few other places and it was Saturday and my wife was with me I was married then um, there was a, a group of us went the next day on Sunday to make wine with Doug Marjoram so we all made wine and Doug goes to everybody if you want to know how to make a blend taste Andy's and then they did a whole blind tasting and mine came in first so I made half a barrel that year it was a 2009 uh, Syrah with a little bit of Grenache in it And a friend of mine in France, Bernard Bardu, took the bottle we gave him and organized a blind tasting. And I figured it was against the cooperative down the road and the fledgling winemaker he knew, but it wasn't. It was against a bunch of 2009 French Syrahs from people like Gaillard, Augier, and Chapoutier. And just like the Judgment of Paris came in first and were you there I was I there? wasn't there I was I, I was not there to influence the wine or the decision as a matter of fact the Guyard rep voted for the Communicado double A Cuvée Communicado wine company double A Cuvée first thinking it was the Gaillard wine, and Bernard told us the story. I was in my, uh, the dream with my good friend Tatiana at the time, and I was just like blown away that here's this wine that we threw together, and, that, and actually the wine that we made that pat, that weekend, we had to make over because the juice ended up in Whole Foods wine, so Doug and I made another wine, we actually made three, and we figured out which one we wanted on a Sunday morning after his birthday, and um, a couple years later made another one, and that one, Doug had Jason Barrett as his assistant winemaker that summer. Jason is best known as the assistant winemaker of Penfolds Grange. Uh, he recently left Penfolds. He's doing his own thing now. So every wine has a story. And since then, uh, I've made um, five more wines, I think. Yeah, five more wines. Uh, some of them I'm just got put in bottle uh, this week. And So I've now made wines in 9, 11, 2, and 13, including 100% Grenache, which I love as a Grenache ambassador, and then another one in 15, and two in 16. And it's fun. I mean, it's all because of that accidental meeting with Doug Marjoram in 1991, and friendship of 20-some years, and also a good friendship with Silvan Padat in Mont in the Languedoc, who has given me a lot of instruction. I'll go into his cave with him, and we'll taste individual parts and components and blends so I, I, I've had that good fortune of having winemakers as friends and now it's fun to leave the world of just being a wine lover to being a winemaker so
0: um, maybe taking inspiration from what happened at the fine Minds for fine wines uh, with Nicole Hollé and the gang um, what do you think needs to happen if you're a winemaker today in order to survive in, in this world of tech and the world that we're, you know, crazy time, you know, small attention spans and, and trying to figure out how to get pierced through the noise? What, um, what, what advice or what kind of thoughts are going through your mind for, for wine marketers or winemakers?
1: Well, there, there's two things. One, the whole direct-to-consumer market is going to change over time. More and more winemakers have to have that direct relationship when they can with their customer, especially fine winemakers. You know, you know, regular wine that you buy at the grocery store not so important, but fine wine requires a relationship between the customer and the winery. And I, I break it down to the three T's plus two more T's. You got to taste, touch, and tell. You have to taste the wine as a as a consumer, as a buyer, as a sob. You have to have some affiliation with the wine. I mean, you have to touch the winemaker in some way. or They have to touch you. You have to visit the winery. You have to go to a wine dinner. You feel closer. You have a deeper affinity between the brand, the bottle, and the per- and the buyer. And third is you have to tell a story. Just like I can tell a story about the first wine that Doug and I made where the first one ended up in Whole Foods, and we had to go back up and make another one you know, and figure it out on a Sunday afternoon, which Sunday morning and afternoon, which we did, um, you know, or the second one with Jason, or the third or the fourth or stories of you going to a winery, like you went to Shen Bleu, and you can talk about the bucolic environment, how you get the modern winery, and the wonderful family that owns it. Everybody has a story around the wine, so they can tell it, and that helps propel it. Well, I've added two more teas to Taste, Touch, and Tell, and those teas are Travel, and technology. Now, travel's a two-way street. The winemaker has to get out of the winery and travel. They really have to. They have to go do more more dinners and more visits. And as I was telling some winemakers this week in the Roussillon, if you don't come to the U.S. to sell your sweet banyuls, it's not going to sell. If you come and you put your charm behind it, it will. And the last one is technology. Technology is no longer... A strange and foreign thing, whether it's social media or using technology in the vineyard or using technology in the the cellar or using technology to track your customers. Wineries, winemakers have to embrace technology. They can no longer just think of themselves as, you know, agrarian farmers who happen to make juice that has alcohol in it. It's a serious, serious thing. Technology is changing the wine world and will change the wine world even more. Everything from drones to sensors in the vineyard to what's going on. And once you put the technology in place, you can then travel more to touch more people so they can taste more wine, so they can tell more stories. And that's how the five T's work together.
0: Beautiful. All right, Andy, we have had a wonderful rollicking. We should have had a glass of wine over, even if it was virtual. <laughs> um, although it's great. <laughs> Early
1: in the morning, yeah. I, I tend not to drink before noon.
0: Oh, well, it's coming soon. I mean, it was past these times. We used it's noon somewhere. Um, and how can someone uh, follow you? What's the best way to contact you or get in touch or follow
1: you? on Facebook. Is I think Facebook has become my... Uh, easiest way of being found and followed um, LinkedIn everything's Andy Abramson whether it's Twitter Facebook or LinkedIn you can go to wineseen.com and read about my wine exploits you can go to andyabramson.com and occasionally read about my technology exploits or you can just hang out with me at some wine event and drink wine like we did in, in the beautiful Blue.
0: and share hockey stories alright Andy thanks for coming on the show continue and have a lovely day
1: thanks Pinter
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors and different way to rid me of the grave and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your